Hi there, friend. My name is John Werner. I used to be a part of the largest cult in the United States. After studying the Bible, Christian history, and ministry, I set my sights on confronting the problematic nature of white evangelicalism in the United States. In 2019, I published my first book as a first step in addressing the subtle issues of this complex system. This podcast will continue that work under the same title. Welcome to The Cult of Christianity. On today's show, we have Steve Martin. No, not that Steve Martin. We have uh, Stephen Holly Martin. Uh, Stephen's a best-selling author and has interviewed dozens of near-death survivors, psychics, researchers into the paranormal, as well as quantum physicists and medical doctors. He has written extensively about energy and the afterlife. Stephen, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for having me, John. I'm looking forward to our chat. And uh, I am kind of a wild and crazy guy, though, I have to say that. <laughs> I'm glad you have like a like a prepared response every time someone does that with your name. I'm, I'm sure that it took a few years to develop one, but that's a good one. I like it. Um, for, first off, I, I ask this to a lot of my guests. Um, how did you relate to re- spirituality or religion the first 18 years of your life? Good question, John. I um, grew up in a family that I describe as being uh, scientific materialists. They didn't think anything existed that didn't that you couldn't see under a microscope they were very scientifically minded and uh, and so i didn't have a whole lot of uh, exposure to spirituality or the church during my first 18 years i will say that we we went to church maybe once or twice a year christmas and easter but it was more of a custom kind of thing that you did at that time of year than than anything to do with religion. My mom was a big anti-Christian fundamentalist. She thought they were all, you know, nuts. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I uh, didn't believe any of that. I was, I would say that at the age of, when I graduated from college, I think I was 23, I I would describe myself as a borderline atheist agnostic, even maybe leaning toward atheist. And then something happened a couple of years later, which if you want to ask me about, I'll tell you about, but uh, that that sort of uh, kind of made me doubt, seriously doubt, the uh, scientific materialist worldview. So uh, that's when I started checking into uh spirituality christianity other things so so there you go that's the answer i i definitely want to get more into kind of the spiritualism versus materialism thing um but just to further clarify um about your main exposure to christianity so you you say you have a a kind of anti-christian mom um did did you have more exposure as an adult or as a kid to christianity well let me just say that my mom was anti- Christian fundamentalist. She didn't, she, you know, back when I was growing up, I'm kind of an old guy now, you know, I'm in my seventies. So, uh, when I was growing up back in the fifties, you know, that's when, uh, people like, uh, you know, were, were yelling out hellfire and damnation and, you know, come down the aisle or you're going to burn in hell or that sort of thing. And that's the kind of thing she railed against. My 
seven times great-grandmother, who was actually not my mother's ancestor, but my father's ancestor, was, was hanged as a witch in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692. And that was kind of my mother's view of what, of, of fundamentalist Christians, the Puritans, and, you know, hanging people because they uh, thought they were witches. You know, it was, but on, on the other side, my father, who I really never got to know very well because he died when I was seven years old, but he was actually the son of a Methodist minister. And he had two brothers who were Methodist ministers. So I think he had a little bit more spirituality going for him. He didn't, he rejected the Christian fundamentalist kind of religion too, but he, in fact, I now that I'm talking about it, I remember when I was very, very young, we would go occasionally to the Unitarian church, which is the one that my father preferred, which if you know anything about the Unitarian church, it, it's not a Christian church. It's a church that is actually the one here in Richmond, where I live, Richmond, Virginia, was founded by Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson, as you know, was a deist. He believed that uh, God created the universe, wound it up and let it go, and was no longer involved in it. And the idea of the Unitarian Church is to bring people of all religions together. That's why it's called Unitarian. Christians, Jews, Muslims, you know, uh, Buddhists, anybody could go to the Unitarian Church. And uh, and it's really, from what I, uh, few times I've been as an adult, more of going to hear a philosophical, you know, lecture than it is to hear a sermon. And so anyway, uh, what was the rest of the question, second part of that? Well, I, I was just, that was actually really, there was so much in there that I, I love. Um, so uh, you, you answered it. I was just curious about what your exposure to um, to Christianity was as a kid versus an adult. Um, and you're also, you, you mentioned to me you're you're married to a Christian, correct? I'm married to a very fervent Christian, very strong believer, and uh, uh, we go to church. I go to church with her. I like the church we go to. Uh, I think the sermons are good. My, my and and I, you know, been married now to this woman for 34 years, and I've gone to Bible studies with her. I know a lot about Christianity now. I know I know basically what the doctrine is, what the canon is. Uh, I know a lot about the Bible because we've studied books of the Bible together in in these classes that she likes to go to, and uh, you know I don't <clears throat> I don't have any problem with Christianity. I think that that Jesus was a an enlightened being. I think that he uh, and we can get into this. I think that when we come into this reality, <clears throat> most of us, practically all of us, ninety nine point nine percent of us at least are veiled. We don't remember <clears throat> where we came from, where we were before we came into this reality. I believe that we are all spiritual beings, eternal spiritual beings, magnificent eternal spiritual beings who have come into this reality, this physical reality, to have the experience of thinking and believing that we're separate. We're not separate. We're all one. There's only one life and we're all part of it. We're all aspects of it. Uh, but when we come into this reality, we're veiled so that we forget that. And we come here 
for the express purpose of evolving. The whole idea of life on Earth, and in fact, in the universe, is evolution. Everything is evolving. Uh, everything is one being that we are each aspects of. And I believe that Jesus understood that. I think that in some way, he wasn't veiled from that. He, he and the Father, what he called the Father, which is the one life that we're all part of, were, you know, one. And he knew that, and he saw that, and he felt that, and he was one with other people. And if you go through his sayings, uh, you'll, you know, if people just went by what Jesus said to do, the world would be so much better. So I don't have a problem with Jesus at all. I think he was a, uh, probably the most enlightened being I'm, I'm aware of. There, there are yogis and things in India that come very close to what Jesus' understanding of the universe is. But uh, nevertheless, because of the, uh, the culture that he came into to in his ministry when he was 30 years old, and let me just step aside here and say that I think probably, and there's evidence for this, between the ages of 12 and 30, 12 was the last uh, time as a youngster that he's mentioned in the Bible when he spoke at the uh, synagogue and people thought he was so wise. And between that time and 30, when he comes upon John, John the Baptist and is baptized, there's no record of Jesus in the Bible. I believe during that time he must have gone to India because his ideas are very close <clears throat> to <clears throat> the Hindu ideas of how <clears throat> of the uh, what he calls the father would be more like Brahman and uh, the whole idea of uh, that we're all one that Maya uh, Maya is this illusion that's created by physical reality that we're all separate when we're not and if you really look at what Jesus was saying. That's those Hindu ideas are reflected in 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 practically everything he says. But he came into a culture that believed that God was a was a separate being. Yahweh is what the Jews called God. There was the God of the Jews. There was the God of the Canaanites. Everybody had their own God. And the whole idea of one God didn't even come along till after Jesus uh, time. So he came into that culture, and because people saw God as separate, they didn't really understand what he was talking about. And the other thing is the idea that he died for our sins on the cross as a, as a human sacrifice. I mean, how gruesome is that? But it was what people believed back then. They The Jews you know, you went to the temple to confess your sins. You took in a bird or something and, and, you know, executed it there on the altar. You know, who is it? Abram, who has the, is about to execute his son. And then, of course, the scapegoat, the goat comes out and, and he kills that one instead. But the idea of a, of a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, was part of their culture. So naturally, when Jesus was executed uh, on the cross, it made sense to them that he was a sacrifice for them, for their sins, because that's what part of their religion was. Not that humans were necessarily sacrificed, although Abram was going to do it. But anyway, that's kind of my view on, on Christianity. And I think it, if people 
are happy with uh, their church and they're they're getting out of it what what they feel they need, as my wife does. It's fine, you know. We're all at different places in our spiritual development, and uh, a church like the one that my wife and I go to is great for her. It makes it gives her comfort. I get a lot out of the sermons, you know. It's, of course, I'm looking at them in a little different way than most of the people are, but I still get something out of them. So there you go, John. What do you think? Well, thank you. That's, uh, I mean, so much in there. Um, I have I have heard this, uh, I, I don't mean this in a reductive sense, but I have heard the theory um, that Jesus w- went to India um, before. I, it's compelling. Um, I, you know, it's 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 kind of one of those things where it's it feels a little bit um, more philosophical evidence than anything else which is or literary evidence which is also well, I've, I've read a book uh, I've read at least one book on, on that uh, that that is written to try to show that and there is a lot of physical evidence for uh, I think what the the they say that the India the people in India called him was Isa I S S A and there are records in the different uh, ashrams or whatever they're called where he is supposed to have been that refer to him and, you know, looks like they match up pretty well. So it, it, it's certainly possible. You know. I, I don't think it's impossible by any means. Uh, I, I, I again, it's kind of like it's kind of like anything in history where there's a gap in someone's life. It's like, well. Who knows? Um, but but the, but I'm not not to again dismiss any evidence. I'm just saying uh, it, it would be very interesting for the listener to look into um, if they're if they're curious about that. Um, yeah, I would suggest they go on Amazon. Go on Amazon and uh, just plug in uh, Jesus in India, and I'll bet you several books will come up. Absolutely, or even yeah, plenty of articles about it and stuff. Um, getting back to kind of uh, you, you answered this I think a little earlier, but just so the listeners clear. Um, spiritualism is the doctrine that um, the spirit exists as distinct from matter or that spirit is the only reality, while materialism is the doctrine that nothing exists except matter and its movements and modifications. And there's likely many beliefs, philosophies, and people who fall somewhere between. Let me expand on that a little bit. Uh, the, the doctrine that the idea that I've come to after 50 years of of studying this and uh, talking to hundreds of people who both scientists and people who are into spirituality and those who've had near-death experiences and so forth, people who remember last past lives, um, is that consciousness is primary. Everything comes from consciousness. Matter comes from consciousness. You know, there's this guy out there, his name is, I think it's Tom Campbell, who says that we're living in a uh, simulation. (laughs) It's really, you know, all in our heads, what we see around us. And that we come into this this simulation and we live, you know, our 70 or 80 or 90 years. And then we go back to where we came from, which is, you know, beyond the veil. And but we come here to evolve and to have the experience of believing that we're separate. The, the, what, what are called physicalists or uh, what I call scientific materialists believe that matter is all there is. That's the basic premise that was adopted back in the 19th century around the time of Darwin. Before that, it was 
deist like Thomas Jefferson, I mentioned him, and that evolved into matter is everything. There's no, we're all here by accident, which is, you know, totally absurd and impossible if you really look into uh, what reality is all about. It cannot have happened by accident. But anyway, we can get into that if you wish. And on top of that, they believe that consciousness is created by matter because they believe that the brain creates consciousness. Well, they call that, the physicalists, the scientific materialists, call that the hard problem because they can't figure out how matter, the brain, creates consciousness. And the reason they can't figure it out, John, is because it doesn't create consciousness. Consciousness creates matter. Matter does not create consciousness. And the brain is simply a receiver that integrates your consciousness with your body. You are a non-local, non-physical being. As I said earlier, a magnificent, eternal being who is having a very temporary physical experience. There you go. Yeah, uh, so I use this word all the time, but I sometimes am... I think, purposely vague in it. So it sounds like a simple question, but it's not. Uh, what is consciousness? What is consciousness? Consciousness is the reaction of one of something outside of us to, uh, our, it's our reaction to it. You can't have consciousness without something that appears to be separate. You know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think that if you really dig down into how things came about, there had to have been what what um, scientists call the unified field, <clears throat> the field of <clears throat> of of um, where it's non-dual and it just exists. And somehow, and I, I've published a book. By the way, I'm a publisher as well as an author. Uh, anybody wants to uh, publish a book, please get in touch with me. Go to my website, shmartin.com, S-H-M-A-R-T-I-N.com, and send me an email. Tell me about it. But anyway, I published a book recently that is supposedly uh, information channeled from a very uh, much higher uh, consciousness, uh, fifth or sixth density consciousness, that, that explains all that. And it goes into about a chapter and a half of mind-numbing information about how this unified field became conscious. So the name of the book is uh, is uh, The Story of Us. It's by a Englishman who lives in France. His name is uh, James King. And if they want to know how consciousness came about, read that book because I cannot summarize those uh, 50 or so pages in a couple of sentences. Sure. It's definitely a complicated question. And I think that's why some people just stop listening <laughs> when you start talking <laughs> well, about. If you, if, you read this, if you read this book, you'll probably stop reading it after a while too. But anyway, I mean, it makes a logical argument. It's just that it's so daggone, comp, uh, you know, involved and, and it takes them so long to, to get it out there that it's just, you know, hey, consciousness is primary. I, I just want to, I don't know if this is complicating the issue further or, or if it would help clarify anything. I think a lot of people, when you talk, when anyone talks about consciousness is 
is consciousness like something an individual owns or is it something we all experience like is it is it more individual or communal there's only one consciousness and it's one that we all share there's only one consciousness it is the consciousness of the one being that exists and we each are windows on that if you uh, stop and say to yourself who am i and wait your your consciousness may go to the back of your mind so that you can actually kind of view your own thoughts or your own mind it's sort of like stepping outside of yourself and sitting on your shoulder and watching yourself that is the one consciousness that we all share it is the that's what I very call the different self. i mean i mean you've alluded to this that's very different than like you know most rationalist or or materialist people would explain consciousness um well they're, they they're would... going to think it they, they think it's it's contained inside your skull and it's not uh it is the what i the silent observer it is the part of you that uh can view your own thoughts can kind of step back and uh, consider your life and what you're doing. And it's the part of you when uh, somebody says something to you to insult you, your ego is going to want to fly out and, you know, give them their own dirt right back. Whereas your consciousness, your silent observer, your connection to the one life can at that point, if it wants, stop you from doing that and, and, you know, think, you know, probably that's not a really very good idea to lash out at that person. You probably shouldn't pull the trigger. That is the one consciousness in you that's at work. Very interesting. I would love to talk about this for about three more hours, but I will move on <laughs> a, a little bit. Um, a related question, though, what is energy? Oh, my gosh. Well, energy is... Um, E equals MC squared. You know, energy equals mass times the speed of light. All right, that's a cop out. It's energy is little vibrations and fluctuations and things that actually how matter is created. It, somehow consciousness, you know, if you look down and look at those little kind of quarks and the, all those subatomic particles that are that are fluttering around, you know, at the speed of light or whatever, and they create matter, that's what energy is. Ener everything is energy. All matter is energy, as in E equals MC squared. Uh, everything is energy, and it comes from consciousness. All material reality is energy. You know, you know as well as I do that they say if you look at a piece of steel, if you could, if you could, uh, if you could get a powerful enough microscope, you would see that there were great distances between the atoms and the and the electrons and all the little sub subatomic particles that are flying around there's no such thing as solid stuff as the scientific materialists believed back in the 19th century when they came up with that theory it doesn't exist it's all energy man again a, a thrilling thing to that uh I, I, pardon, pardon me world but you really want to smoke weed when you talk about this stuff sometimes <laughs> just because it, it really is kind of trippy uh it has that sensation when you when you're kind of deconstructing the bare bones of what it is well to you know that's something human. i used to do back in the 70s i haven't done it recently but you know and it does help you kind of get a handle on those things 
I, I, I bet I, I'm I'm not much of a smoker myself, but I'm not I'm not <laughs> against it by any means. And and my few experiences, I I can definitely relate to the to the stereotypes. Um, it's just it, become legal in Virginia, by the way. Oh, congratulations! Still not in Georgia, <laughs> but uh, no one no one really cares it's down here. <laughs> we do it anyways. Um, you know, intuitively, I think most people modern day feel that there is something more than we observe and experience. Um. But many are likely either unconcerned or like underwhelmed by what that extra thing is. Is that apathy a good thing or a bad thing? You know, I think I said earlier that we're all on a in different places on our paths, you know, and it may be exactly what that person needs at this juncture in his or her uh, evolution, soul evolution, because you know. The reason we come here is because of the, uh, we think we're separate. And that is part of the game that we're playing. And, and game is not the right word, but part of the reason we come into this reality is to realize or think that we're separate for a while. And that allows us to grow and expand in a way that uh, you can't do when you realize. That you are part, that you and everybody else are all one being. It just can't you can't do it if you in, are in that other reality. Whereas here is being, and part of what that separation does is cause us to have fear, to fear, to fear that uh, fear death, to fear that we're going to not have enough money and become homeless, to fear all kinds of things, and that fear is something that you know we hate it when it's happening but when it's over with we realize when we've gone through something that caused a lot of fear and and we we uh endured it and we get to the other side and hopefully when we get to the other side we're on a higher level of uh evolution than when we started out so the fear is is part of the catalyst or the crucible that causes us to grow and so the fact that they feel separate and, you know, all this BS about being part of one great uh, life, you know, that's not what they need at this time. What they need is to go through the hero's journey of the life they're on, because that's what what's going to cause them to grow. So I think that there really is, you know, as Shakespeare's Hamlet said, there's nothing either good or bad. But thinking makes it so. And that is true. It may, you may think, you know, what happened in uh, Oshkosh, Wisconsin was bad. But, you know, people come out of it having grown because of it. So is it good or is it bad? Well, there's, you know, it just depends on how you look at it, just like Shakespeare said. Yeah, man, fascinating stuff, especially because... Um... You're kind of there. There, you kind of can spin it either way, right? You can either find some hope in this sort of um, shared thing that we're a part of, or you can kind of be like, I don't want anything to do with that. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and uh, so wherever you are is fine. You're right where you need to be. Yeah, and that's a very positive um, 
energy that that I can appreciate. I'm going to do something that's impossible next. I'm going to uh, try to give a brief summary of historical views of the afterlife. <laughs> um, I promise okay. it will be incomplete and uh, way too brief, but here we go. So um, ancient Egyptians are some of the earliest people groups who developed doctrines about the afterlife. Um, they had concepts such as the kingdom of the dead, purifying your heart so that you get rewards and avoid being devoured by a demon. Uh, they talk about um, trial periods in one's journey from this life to the next. Uh, there's also ancient Greek mythology ideas of Hades, the underworld, the river Styx, and different paradises. Um, and those are often imagined as like fields. Uh, and then there's um, ancient Judaism and the concept of afterlife. They, they did have Sheol in the Hebrew Bible. And that was like a place of darkness where all dead went. Um, both righteous and unrighteous, regardless of the moral choices they made in life. And it was considered a place of stillness. Um, and then when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, um, the word Hades was actually substituted for Sheol. Um, and uh, this is reflected in the New Testament, where Hades is both the underworld of the dead and the personification of uh, the evil it represents. And there's plenty of disagreements among scholars about whether ancient Jews also believed in reincarnation or if they believed in annihilation or some sort of paradise. Um, Jesus himself was not reported to have said much specific about the afterlife. Um, Jesus said that the resurrected will be like the angels in heaven at one point. Um, and Jesus also maintained um, that the time would come when the dead would hear the voice of the Son of God and all who were in the tombs would come out. Um, and those who have heard his commandments and believed uh, would have eternal life, but those who did not would suffer condemnation. So Orthodox Christianity is supposed to be non-dualist and does not teach, actually, that there are two separate literal locations of heaven and hell in Orthodox Christianity, um, but instead acknowledges that the location of one's final destiny, uh, heaven or hell, is figurative. However, um, from Catholic doctrines of limbo or purgatory to the Enlightenment's fetishism of the terrifying hell, um, Christian views of the afterlife are typically summarized as Christians go to heaven to rejoice with God and non-Christians go to hell uh, to suffer separation from him. Okay, so I'm going to ask a strange question here. What do you think some of these ancient ideologies got right? I didn't hear much in that that I think was correct, uh, or any of it. Um, you know, I think didn't Jesus, Jesus never talked about hell. I mean, he talked about some garbage dump on the outskirts of, of uh, Jerusalem, you know. But uh, uh, didn't he, when he was on the cross with the two... Today you will be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. I mean, that to me is about the only one, only time I can think of that Jesus talked about the afterlife. Yeah, you know, the, the, and that and then the angels in heaven comes from when uh, they were talking about uh, will who who's marrying who in heaven, and Jesus was like, nobody. Uh, you're <laughs> you're going to be like angels in heaven. Yeah, and I think he was right about that, and I think he was right about telling the, those two crooks that they were going to be with him in paradise uh, uh, because there is no hell in my view of things. Uh, there is only love. You know, the, the, the one being of which we're all part is love. God is love. That, uh, that's cliche, but it's true. It's a lot of times cliches are true. And also Jesus said, in my father's house, there are many rooms. 
And that is absolutely an understatement. Apparently, there are so many realities that, you know, there's no way that we little human beings in, the, in our dumbed down body brains that we've got can even conceive of it. But I've talked to a lot of people who uh, had near-death experiences, and I had one of my own. That was what really started me on on this whole quest. I was, <laughs> I was. Uh, let me quickly tell you that story, and then we can. Please do. I was going to ask if you <laughs> if you didn't tell it, so I, I want to hear yeah, it. I was 25 years old, I think, about that, and um, I was not married yet. I was working at an ad agency in Baltimore, Maryland. I had two roommates. We had a large apartment. Uh, it was on a couple of different floors in an old townhouse in Bolton Hill in Baltimore. And I was had a really bad case of the flu. I It was a Saturday night. And, I, and you know, when you're 25 and it's Saturday night, you, you want to be out on the town or going to a party or something like that. But I was up in my bedroom nursing this flu, feeling horrible, trying to read. And this is kind of ironic because uh, I was reading Metamorphosis by Frank Kafka, you know, where I don't know if you know about that book, but it's it's about somebody who uh, turns into a cockroach or something and he turns into a bug. Anyway, I was getting up to the part where this guy started to turn into being a cockroach. I don't think it was actually a cockroach, but it was that idea. And I heard some people come into the apartment. I was up on the second floor and I heard some people come in and pretty soon there were more people coming in and pretty soon there was kind of this din going on of there was a party going on downstairs. So I I felt horrible, but I nevertheless made myself get up, dropped that book, which is probably still under the bed if that bed is still there because I never picked it up after that. And I put on some clothes and I went downstairs and I had some beer, and I had some scotch, and I smoked some pot. And after a while, I was just feeling even worse, horrible. I, I practically knee-walked back up to my bedroom, flopped down on the bed, and it was like spinning around, like it was like, you know, a helicopter blade turning around, you know, about to take off. And suddenly I just popped out and, and I was looking at my body down on the bed and I was up around the ceiling and I was I was looking down at this guy who looked like roadkill on the bed. And it, it didn't last that long, but it lasted long enough for me to have an epiphany. And the epiphany was this, I'm not my body. I'm up here looking down at my body and but I'm up here. So and and I didn't don't think this occurred to me till later but I realized my brain does not create my consciousness because my brain is down there inside my body. But as I said it didn't last very long. But it was vivid enough and real enough that I knew that from then on that I was not my body. I was my consciousness. And that started me on my quest. I joined the Rosicrucian Society, which is a society of mystics that uh, study metaphysical laws. I read everything I could get my hands on about metaphysics. And later on, about 10 years later, uh, when I was meditating, I had uh, the sensation or the experience of 
of my consciousness merging with the universal consciousness so that I knew everything. And if anybody wants to know all about that, I've got a whole chapter of it in my second book on life after death. Life after death, book two, describes that experience. But uh, so that's what got me started on the uh, on, on this quest. But now I've lost my train of thought. Where where was I headed? What was the question? Thank you. Uh, well, <laughs> I want to I actually want to stay on this for a little bit and then go back to some of uh, what I've written down here. But but it's interesting you say that your your story is interesting because it's not an uncommon one. Um, I can even attest to two near-death experiences where I had something kind of similar. Um, one was I was a very young kid, hit my head on the bottom of the pool, and it felt like my body was going down, but something else was going up. Um, don't know what it was. I was a kid. Who knows? That's I never really thought about it till much later in life. And then uh, more recently, back in uh, August, um, uh, well, I don't know if this podcast is probably coming out later, but in August of, uh, of 2021, um, I was in a horrible car accident um, and got hit by a truck on my driver door. And uh, my body went right, but it felt like I was, again, going up. <laughs> um, and it's a sensation that's kind of hard to, to articulate if you haven't felt it yourself. Um, but I will say there, you know, would a scientific a rationalist or materialist kind of just say, yeah, that's called a concussion. Um, and, and what's kind of your argument against people who try to, to rationalize that phenomenon? Yeah, they would, they would say you were hallucinating, but if you've had it happen, if you, if it's, if you've been there, you know, you're not hallucinating because it's not, I, you know, it's not like a dream or an hallucination. It's real. It's even, it's re more real than, than uh, than than imagination can create, you know. I I was feeling awful. The room was spinning in my uh, as I was in my body. When I popped out, it was like, hey, this is okay. I feel great. You know, I'm I'm wide awake. I can see everything clearly down there in the bed. Hey, there's Steve down there. So, you know, it. They can say it's an hallucination all they want. But if you've had it happen to you, you know it's not a hallucination. The same with people who have near-death experiences, and and they have much more of a detailed and long, you know. They're, I've talked to people who were dead for half an hour, you know, their heart stopped, and they, they have this whole story that they tell, you know, of going through the tunnel, of of having the past life review, of visiting with uh, relatives who are deceased. And all of that, and it's very, very real to them, very vivid, more vivid, they say, than this reality that we're in now. So, Absolutely, you know, rationalists, yeah. can, they can say all they want. They just, you know, and it's fine. if they More power to them. As I said earlier, that's where they need to be. That's fine. Uh, they're they're on, the, on a path, and that's where they are on the path. Sure. And yeah, and there's an, you know, I, I'm thinking of one of uh, my friends, older guy who he's been dead a couple times. Um, and uh, he he uh, he is actually kind of I mean, he's very uh, he's not I wouldn't say like super educated or anything, but I love him to death. Um, but, he, you know, he always would say to me back when I was a Christian and would try to proselytize to him. Uh, he'd always say that I've been dead and I didn't see nothing, you know, so, so there's uh <laughs> There's definitely stories like that too, um, which I think kind of maybe 
adds to it. But there certainly are phenomenon that scientific uh, scientific materialists have not been able to explain, um, and certainly fits with some of what we do know about energy and consciousness. Yeah, and scientific materialists are. are I'm, I'm finding that there are fewer and fewer of them because there's so much research being done. I mean, the University of Virginia has been on this this uh, subject for six, almost 60 years. It started in the middle, mid-60s, 1960s. They've been studying children's memories of past lives. And uh, they've got over 2,600 cases, about two-thirds of which are what they call solved, which means they found the uh, person that the child believed he was, that did exist and did have you know, those that name and lived in that city and had that job and had that wife with that name and all that stuff. So, and they've been studying uh, 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 near-death experiences too. And what they, the conclusion they've come to is the one that I mentioned earlier, and that is that the brain does not create consciousness. It does not store memories. How could it possibly store memories if a child remembers who he was in a previous life and they can go back and find that individual. And yes, everything matches up. Well, there was a time when that child didn't have a body when, between when he died and when he was reborn. So how did those memories carry over? Well, they certainly weren't stored in any physical location. Memory is fascinating to, to research because, um, well, firstly, we know a lot more about memory than we used to. Um, <laughs> we used to think it worked uh, very simply and, even the most diehard uh, materialists will tell you, no, memory is strange. Um, we're, we're figuring it out. Um, you know, some of this all, as far as like philosophy of life, what you believe probably goes back to how we perceive the concept of life. Um, you know, it, it, a technical definition of life is the condition that distinguishes animals and plants from inorganic matter, which is a little bit using the word to define itself, but, um, and, and including the, you know, some markers are the capacity for growth, reproduction, functional activity, and uh, the continual change preceding death. But to be fair, these there's things that don't grow that can be alive, as well as things that don't fully function or reproduce that can be alive. So practically speaking, life is just the thing before death. Um, is there a better term for whatever happens after we die than after life? Well, I think what we do is we, we shed the body. You know, we, we leave it. And uh, what reality we go into will depend on who we are I mean, where, where we need to go. And we're going to go where we need to go or where we believe. You know, one of the problems, of course, is that when an atheist dies, they can be very confused and uh, not uh, realize that they're even dead for a while. And when they do, they can't figure out what to do about it because they don't even re realize that they need to look for the light and go to it. And I met this guy once who believed that if you went to the light, you were automatically going to get recycled and reborn. He didn't want to be reborn. So he says, when I die, I'm not going toward the light. Well, he's going to be hanging out in a cemetery somewhere in, in a basement. You know, I've got this friend in France who's got this big old house in the country and I uh, went out to visit him. He and his wife were renovating, renovating this, this house. My first wife was French, and we used to go to France every summer for two or three weeks. And uh, he was—he said, "You know, the strangest thing happened. I, when 
he inherited this house, but it hadn't been lived in for about 30 years. So, and he had some money, so he was fixing the place up, you know, put a new roof on, knocking some walls down, that kind of thing. So he and his wife would go out there on the weekends, check on how things were going. They'd spend the night. And he said, I started hearing these, somebody screaming for help, screaming for help. And, and I, every night, right before I would, would drift off to sleep, I would hear this screaming for help. So finally he got up and he started looking around for it. And he went down into the basement of this old place and he thought, you know, I think it's coming from down here. So he got some of the workmen to go down to the basement and tear out a wall that looked like it was a little newer than the other uh, walls in that basement. It was a big house and had a big basement with wine cellar and all that. It tore out this wall. There was a skeleton behind the wall, it had been bricked up behind the wall. And he thinks that this guy must have gotten bopped on the head. Uh, they took him down to the basement, bricked him up behind the wall, and he came to it. He'd been trying to get out ever since. They buried this skeleton. They gave it a Christian burial. They were good Catholics. And uh, they never heard the night noises again, never heard that screaming again. So, you know, that's what that's what could happen to you if you're an atheist. You could end up uh, haunting a basement or uh, maybe an old castle, or, you know. Sitting on a tombstone. It's so it's so interesting when I hear you know the, I mean just basically a paranormal antidote like that. Um, <laughs> I'm always so split. I'm always so like oh interesting that fits into some of my like spiritual beliefs, and then I'm also like ah there there's some <laughs> some fishy going on here. Like I, I have that like skeptic and that like believer you know <laughs> uh, tendency to feel both at the same time. I think, you know, I want to say that I think it's good to be a skeptic. I don't think you should believe everything people tell you. It's good well, to be people a lie a lot. I mean, that's yeah, definitely find out for yourself, you know. know. But I can tell you, this yeah. guy, he had no reason to tell me this story, except that right. he knew I was interested in that sort of thing, I guess. Well, and I, I, I have ghost stories I tell, but even the ones I tell, I'm kind of like, yeah, I mean, this might not have happened. I might just be making it up. <laughs> but I don't know, because I thought I did. But, you know, um, let's, uh, let's, let's contrast some of what we talked about with christianity shall we since that's kind of my my feel here um you know an, an important part of the christian tradition is the idea of an afterlife um for many it's how they resolve the rampant injustice of the human experience um bad things happen with no resolve often and uh good deeds are also done with no reward sometimes and behind the augustinian where where saint augustine was where christians get a lot of their theology um, behind the Augustinian understanding of hell lies a commitment to uh, a retributive theory of punishment, um, according to which uh, the primary purpose of punishment is to satisfy the demands of justice, or as some might say, to balance the scales of justice. Um, it would be unfair, however, to imply that all Augustinians, as classified above, accept Augustine's own understanding of an eternal torture chamber. He he wrote pretty explicitly about it. Um, for many, Augustinians view uh, of the agony of hell, they, they view it as essentially uh, psychological and spiritual in nature, um, consisting of the knowledge that every possibility for joy and happiness has been lost forever. Um, and even so, you know, different waves of Christian rhetoric have kind of crashed, retreated, risen again. Um, but a torturous punishment in some form is typically on the table. So I have to ask you, do, do you think the threat of hell is an abusive threat? 
I think it's a misunderstanding. I think it's it's projecting uh, physical reality onto non-physical reality onto the other side of the veil. And, and the other side of the veil is totally not like it is here. We don't feel separate. We know we're, part, we're one with everyone. And uh, we, we can feel their feelings as they can feel ours. There are no secrets on the other side. I think that when people die, they go where they feel comfortable. And if they feel comfortable around other sociopaths, that's where they're going to go. If they feel comfortable around others who are loving and, and kind, then that then they'll be in that kind of environment. I think we go where we feel comfortable. And we may not initially, we might go to a place where, you know, everything is um, beauty and light and love. And then, you know, eventually we'll kind of drift off to where it is. You know, there, there are other souls like us that we feel compatible with. And I think that's kind of what we should do here. If we're around people that we're not getting along with, that we don't uh, have uh, feel any rapport with, we should move on and find other people we do feel comfortable with and rapport with. But that's another story. Uh, as far as the Christian idea of afterlife, my I thought, you know, I don't think anybody nowadays believes this, but it seems to me Christian doctrine would say that we are raised at at the rapture, that we are, you know, in the grave. And uh, you see the pictures, the medieval, you know, paintings of people coming up out of graves and, you know, and that's, that's the afterlife, that it's really very physical on this earth. But we're raised at the, at the end of time. To me, the end of time is when we leave this reality, because this is the only place where time exists. Time does not exist in, in non-physical reality. So, but to, so I think the idea of hell is just a human construction. You know, it's you know we have prisons here. Back when Augustine or whoever it was was writing, they probably were still burning people at the stake. So yeah, I mean they we we give people pretty awful punishments. As I said earlier, my seven times great grandmother was hanged as a witch. That was a pretty awful way to go. That sort of thing does not happen on the other side. I sure hope not. I, I don't. I don't. I don't really particularly want to. First off, <laughs> frankly, my pessimistic attitude. I don't really want another life that resembles this one too much. Um, for for various reasons. Uh, there's certainly a glimpse of of glory, so to speak, that are uh, that are nice on this earth. Um, but you know, the bad stuff's pretty bad down here. Um, you know, but I, again, I think some of the Christian motivation for for Again, in the early days, hell was not really that on big on the radar in, in early Christian tradition. But it, but it, frankly, at least in American evangelicalism, it's like you can't talk about pretty much any theology without mentioning hell eventually, um, because, it, it, you know, you start deconstructing some of what they're saying and then it goes back to, well, I don't want to go to hell. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just had someone on the podcast that essentially our, our conversation started going that direction kind of out of nowhere. So, so what theoretic, but I still do, I trust the intentions. I think, I think it's about trying to satisfy a need for justice. I guess a way I could ask this is, is what do we believe about Hitler's afterlife? Because I think that's kind of where some of the motivation for, for, uh, holding on to these doctrines of hell come from. Well, you know, I do think that that we create karma that we have to deal with. 
And karma is not, you know, people think the idea of karma is you do something bad, something bad comes back to you. That's a very simplistic view of karma. Karma really, according to Edgar Cayce, who I've written a book about, if anybody wants to read that again, my website is shmartin.com. And that book is on there. You can click on it. Um, karma is a memory. It's, it's a kind of who you are. And when you develop karma from, let me give you, let me give you an example. You know people, I know people, we know of, perhaps know of people who always seem to attract someone to them, a significant other who abuses them, who treats them poorly, who treats them badly, maybe physical abuse, maybe mental abuse, but one partner after another, they're always attracting that kind of a person. So that doing that is that person's karma, which means in order for that not to happen again, they have to change their karma. So what is their karma? Their karma is that they must believe that they are uh, a not a worthy person, that they are a person who is worthy of abuse, or they wouldn't be attracting someone to them who does that to them. It's they've attract, They're attracting people who have the same low opinion of them that they have of themselves. That's I- their karma. Can I jump in and, and maybe I, I'm not saying I disagree because I definitely believe in a in kind of a I, people I don't particularly care for use this terminology, so I don't want to associate with them. But I, I, I there is such a thing as a victimhood mentality um, yes. or, or, or something where you, you know, but but it, there's another angle at that. Um, I think a lot of people who are find themselves in abusive situations often um, are just either undereducated or or just not familiar with a certain kind of abuse. Um, I've I've just seen that a lot where I think it's not always like they have something they have to to change their mind about. I mean, there's probably a lesson to learn, but I think also there's just a lot of abusers out there. <laughs> and uh, I think and not. And again, they're still human. I'm not uh, categorically saying they're inhumane. Um, totally. But there's a lot of just bad people out there that I think work their way into um, some of the nicer people in, in, in life. And if you're one of the nicer people, you need to get away from someone like that. It's what I said earlier about being around people that you have a rapport with, that you want to be around, that you that you have, uh, you know, your your vibes are similar. If your vibes are similar to that person who's the abuser, you know, and... <laughs> It, it, what you need to do is change and realize that you are a magnificent, eternal, spiritual being having a physical experience, and you don't have to put up with that crap. You can move on. And once they realize that, then they can move on. And they can, you know, don't they can forgive the abuser who's been abusing them, but they don't need to be around them anymore. I mean, absolutely. I would, I would never encourage someone who's suffering abuse to uh, stick it out for any reason. Um, right. But uh, you know, which I, I mean, a big part of the reason I actually like the discourage um, submitting to Christian systems is I think it can be a very abusive system. It's it's for very similar reasons. Well, it is. You know, the whole thing about hell and damnation, and if you don't, but all that's created by people who are trying to control others. I mean, that's what it is. Look at the fact that Christianity doesn't have reincarnation in it anymore. It did for the first 500 years. I can quote you scripture that, that you know, shows that Jesus believed you were in reincarnation. 
Can I actually? I, I'm, I'm kind of interested in that. Uh, I, I, I can, do you do you mind? I mean, we can take time to look it up or whatever. I'll tell you. I can give you one right off the top of my head. Love it. Uh, I'm sure you remember the passage where Jesus disciples his followers uh, are there, and, and he says, uh, "Who do people say I am?" And the followers say, "Well, some people say you're John the Baptist, but others say you're Elijah or one of the prophets." Well, Elijah, he'd been dead for a while, <laughs> four hundred years. So if, if Jesus was Elijah, one of the prophets, he'd have to be the reincarnation. And uh, also, Jesus says that that uh, said that uh, John the Baptist was Elijah. He was the he's the Elijah who is to come. You know who to who was coming. You know to pave the way for the Messiah. I, I will say just to just for my few evangelical <laughs> listeners, I'll stick up for you for the first time in you know over twenty episodes. Um, <laughs> but their the, their interpretation would go something like that's that's a hev- heavy metaphorical language. I'm not saying it's a strong argument, but um, and they would also say that they take everything in the Bible literally. Let me give you one more example. <laughs> Thank you. I, I that was my one attempt in this entire time of podcasting to be like maybe evangelicals have an argument there, and I'm like no, nah, no. Nah, really well let me tell you remember when jesus comes upon the blind man and he's the man who's blind from birth and his disciples say uh rabbi why was this man born blind was it him or was it his parents who sinned and of course jesus says well it was neither one it was so that the glory of god can be shown or something like that but you know how could this guy be born blind because of his own sins, if he didn't have a previous life. So, I mean, those things, it, there's I, one guy I talked to, the head of uh, the Association for Research and, and Enlightenment in Virginia Beach, told me that he has counted at least a dozen references to uh, that indicate uh, reincarnation in the Matthew Gospel alone. It certainly was a belief of the time. I, I won't debate that. So let me tell you how reincarnation got expunged from the church doctrine. I would love to hear, yes. Yeah, it happened in 553 at the Second Council of Constantine when the uh, Emperor Justinian put pressure on the Pope to eliminate uh, uh, reincarnation from Christianity. And and I'll say the reason he did it because it was accepted up until then, 500 years, more than 500 years, and the first 500 years of Christianity, it was part of the doctrine. It was eliminated because uh, the <laughs> if people thought they were going to get another chance, another go-round to make it into heaven, you know, they might not obey the church. So it was a power thing that got, got it eliminated. Justinian was the head of the church. I mean, the Pope reported to him. And he wanted it out of there for that reason. I'm not. That's my opinion of why I wanted it out. My, it's not my opinion that he put pressure on the Pope to get rid of it because he did, and and the Pope reluctantly went along with it. I'm glad you brought this up. So I am familiar with this bit. I, it's like you triggered the the old Bible school memory just popped in. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the 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 argument was, um, as I remember, that uh, th- there were christians teaching reincarnation and that was that was what was said hey we got to cut that out um 
So that's, but, but I've always heard it spun as, uh, I'm not, which, you know, I've heard things spun all kinds of ways. Um, but I always heard it spun that like, it was because, uh, Christians shouldn't believe in reincarnation, not because it was generally accepted, but because there were outliers teaching reincarnation. Well, it was generally accepted in the, you know, 2000 years ago, the Greeks, everybody believed in reincarnation. The only ones that didn't perhaps were one sect of the Jews. And I've forgotten whether it was the Sadducees or the, uh, uh, the other sect, I think. I, I, th- I don't think Pharisees believed in. Maybe that was the Pharisees. Maybe it was the Pharisees. The yeah. Sadducees did believe in it. I, I, I think that's didn't. correct. Yes. Yeah. Man, this is fun. I'm actually using that uh, education I paid so much money for, so that's fun. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, uh, let's. Uh, there, there's something you said I actually thought might make an interesting contrast with at least like modern Christianity, or specifically the one the sect I deal with the most is evangelicalism. Um, so less reformed Christians will state the basic idea that hell, along with the self-imposed misery it entails is essentially a freely embraced condition rather than a forcefully imposed punishment. So it's kind of, it's, it actually parallels kind of the whole, you, you go hang out with who you want to go hang out with after. Um, That's an interesting twist to me, but, but but I still have a problem with that. If you don't consent to the rules, is it fair to suffer the consequences? So that's, that's my main, like, um, I guess justice issue with the whole thing is whether it's God, you know, uh, letting Satan uh, wreak havoc on you, or if it's a more psychological separation, whatever that form of punishment is, I still, it's not like people agreed to a bunch of rules when they were born. It was just kind of like, here you go, here you are. This is, this is reality. Yeah, I don't, you know, I just don't think that, uh, I think that God, <laughs> this is, I hear this in church all the time, but it's true. God loves you. Every you know, all God is love. God loves every one of his creatures. He's your children. If you have children, you love your children even though they might do bad things or must make mistakes. And I think God is the same way. God doesn't send you to hell. If you as I said earlier, are you know, like to hang around with sociopaths, go hang around with sociopaths. It's okay with him. Uh I think the have you heard of uh what is that Emanuel Swedenborg's church. Emanuel Swedenborg lived in the 18th century, I guess, 17-something. And uh, he apparently was able to kind of go back and forth between realities, between physical reality and non-physical reality. And his basic teaching was that there were seven levels of heaven. That, and, you know, that, uh, that earth here, this physical reality, is comparable to the one that would be in the middle. What would that be? Four, I guess. Well, as you went up towards level seven, it became more love, more do unto others, more uh, heavenly in our idea of heaven. Whereas the middle one was equal good and bad, equal uh, good and evil. And below that, it was more darker and dingier and more evil-like. But you ended up going to whatever level you where you felt comfortable that you felt you belonged that's almost like the uh the inverse of the divine comedy <laughs> you know i don't think that there are just seven levels there's probably a million levels but or a million different you know in in my father's house there are many rooms many 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 rooms 
But anyway, I think something like that makes sense to me. Yeah, I've I've heard individualized catered um afterlifes, which is basically what that is. And 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 you know, I don't think that's crazy. I mean, in, in some sense it actually makes kind of more more sense. Um you know, rarely if ever are Christian theologians very specific about what heaven will supposedly look like. I you know there's as you said, there's nothing about it in the Bible. It's only Jesus makes one comment. You know, we're going to be in paradise. There's that's exactly where I was going. I was like, the Bible says nothing clear about exactly what heaven is. And it's and it's also, I think, not the greatest look to uh, dig into theology about how rewarded you will be. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of humble braggish there. Um, one might also wonder how God could preserve the happiness of those in heaven who know that some of their loved ones are suffering forever in hell, again, in like a dualistic uh, Christianity worldview. But I, yeah. I have a question for you, more general. Like, is there any evidence that eternal rewards are out there for anyone? I think that uh, all that really gets is off what I think this reality, this physical reality that we're in right now, is about. This physical reality, we are attending the University of Earth. And the reason we're here is to evolve, and it is to evolve spiritually. And the way that happens is that we face hardships here. We face hardships both in terms of physical hardships and in terms of psychological hardships, psychological suffering. The, the whole, we are on what, uh, what what's his name? Um, the guy who, who, the hero with a thousand faces. Uh, he wrote that book. Anyway, the, we're on a hero's journey. We have left our home, our normal home, which is where we were before we came into this life, and we have been thrust into a hero's adventure where we're going to have to fight demons, and we're going to have to, you know, go into the belly of the whale. We're going to make friends, and we're going to have uh, good times, but we're also going to have to fight the bad guys and the demons, and we're going to come out on the other side. It's sort of like Dorothy when she's in Kansas and she goes to the land of Oz and she meets the lion and she meets the, the scarecrow and the, and the tin man and they go off on this adventure and they have to get the broom from the witch. So that's their trip into the belly of the whale. And then when they get back to the wizard, he says, oops, you know, I'm not really a wizard, but he manages to uh, send them, send Dorothy back to Kansas and so she's gone through all that. She's had the hardships. She's had the dark moment when she didn't think it was going to work out. And then she's back in Kansas and she says, there's no place like home. She is on a higher level of understanding, a higher level spiritually than when she left. And that's what this whole life is about. It's not about rewards. It's not about uh, going to heaven because that's your reward. It's about growing spiritually. It's a never ending journey that we're on. We're going to be on this for eternity, and eventually we may be our own universe. I don't know where it all ends up, but I do think that that is what reality, physical reality, is all about. It's a school. It's a university. We're here to learn. Oh, yeah.
Look, you could buy my book, you wanna buy my book, go buy my book, go to VernerBooks.com, yeah, yeah, go to VernerBooks.com, yeah, yeah, go buy my book and buy my book. If you go to VernerBooks.com, you can buy my book, you can buy my book, yeah. The Cult of Christianity, exclusively available on Amazon. You can search the Cult of Christianity, how churches control, contain, and convert by John Verner, or you can go to VernerBooks.com. You can go to VernerBooks.com. Go to VernerBooks.com. Buy my book! Buy my book! Buy my book. Man, I haven't said this in a long time, but preach, brother, preach. That was awesome. <laughs> That's uh, as a as a huge like fan of storytelling. Uh, you know, this is this is something writers talk about honestly more than theologians. Is just the the you know uh, whether it be yeah the hero's journey or um, you know story circles or all the, the you know these concepts. Um, you know, you've written a lot about this topic uh, of, of of you know consciousness afterlife. What are the pros and cons of investigating the afterlife? Pros and cons? Well, I think that if you like if you get to where I am, whereas I'm not worried about dying. In fact, I'm kind of not looking forward to it, but I think it'll be an adventure too. Uh I think that it makes a whole big huge difference in how you look at the world and whether you uh it makes it a whole lot easier to weather these storms and the problems and the, you know, the, the, it lessens your fear because you know that it's all going to come out okay in the end. And, uh, you know, even, even pain, I mean, it makes it easier to bear the pain. Uh, so I think I said earlier, I was talking about how this is, fear is the big thing here. That's what we deal with, whether it's fear, of something physical happening or uh, you know, getting COVID and being sick, or whether it's fear of uh, uh, going bankrupt and having to live on, uh, be homeless and so forth. Those are fears that we have to deal with. But that fear, just like Dorothy in the Land of Oz, she was afraid of the witch, and but she faced it anyway, and she got through, and she captured the broom, you know, and she's on a higher level of understanding. So when you when you internalize all that, it makes life a whole lot easier to deal with. So that is the benefit. I can't think of a downside to it, except that you're going to have to. I, I look at people's belief systems. People, all of us have a belief system, and and I, in one of my books, I compare it to one of these aisle end displays where you know they put all these boxes in the form of a pyramid. They, that, you know, just goes on up one on top of the other and they build this pyramid out. Well, if there's a belief down at the base that is uh, one of your fundamental beliefs and it's holding up all the other ones as it goes on up the scale, if you change that belief, that whole thing is going to come tumbling down and you're going to have to rebuild it from the ground up. And that is the downside of, of opening your mind to what reality really is all about because you're probably going to have to go through a period when you have to readjust and have to change a lot of your ideas because a lot of what we believe just is not so. It's It ain't true. And so you're going to have to deal with that and you're going to have to change those beliefs if you're going to get to where I have come after 50 years of this.
So yeah, it's almost like you know, just that emotional uncomfortableness. Um, that's not to reduce how how real it will be, but it, it, that's essentially the feeling is that uncomfortableness of of unlearning yeah. things. I I, I want to spend one more thing. I, I wasn't planning on asking this, but I would be remiss if uh, my uh, my cynical self didn't chime in here. Um, you know, this is a very positive outlook. This is a, this is a spiritual view I tend to gravitate towards um, when I'm at my best. But when I'm not necessarily at my best, um, I, you know, you talk about fear, right? The fear of being homeless. Well, I, I have been homeless before. Um, you know, the fear of losing everything. I have lost everything before. Uh, you know, there, there's these fears that, that sometimes come true. And some, some I've told friends before, the funny thing about when a fear comes true is then you're like, yeah, that's not so bad. Um, but it is bad. Uh, you know, there, there's the two selves that are, are dealing with it. There's the... Um, there's the, you know, rational self that can almost say, well, I mean, I'm still here, so it didn't kill me. Um, but I've also, you know, but then I'm like, but, uh, you know, some days, some days are miserable. Some days uh, are tough. And, you know, the promise of an afterlife, um, you know, especially I, I'm pretty active in, in the suicidal, um, in suicidal, uh, preventing suicide work. Um, for many, many people, uh, the idea that life keeps going is is much more of a nightmare than a, than a than a dream. So I just wanted to hear if you have any thoughts on that, or or if there's any legitimacies to some of that kind of cynical outlook. Well, a couple of things come to mind uh, with that, and one is that uh, if life if life in the afterlife in the other side, what I call the other side, is like it is here, then yeah, but who? we come here to believe that we're separate and to experience those fears because we grow from them. If we go back to the other side and we still feel separate and we still have the fears, then, you know, what good is that? Well, it's not like that over there. You're going to, you're going to be in the arms of love. I mean, it's going to be a great place for you to be. You're going to be around people. At least you'll want to be around people who are like you, who, who uh, you get along with. You probably have a soul group that you're part of that you'll go back to. Uh, that's a whole subject we didn't talk about. The other thing is that comes to mind is, so anyway, and oh, suicide. From what I know about suicide, I have a friend who, uh, let, I'll, if we have time, I'll tell you this story quickly. This kid was 16 years old. He's now, he's a contemporary of mine now. He told me this story about 10 years ago. He and I both went to the same high school. And uh, he was 16 at the time. And he uh, was had a friend over uh, spending the night, Saturday night. And he thought he was in love with his friend's girlfriend, his good best friend's girlfriend. And the best friend's girlfriend had expressed uh, some sort of a, you know, like maybe we could get together kind of thing. And so he was lying in bed with his friend across the room uh, in another bed. And it was in the middle of the night. And he's thinking, oh, my God, this is horrible. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm in love with my best friend's girlfriend. He's my best friend. She, wa she wants to reciprocate. But I don't know what to do. And he started thinking about maybe the, the, the way out was suicide. So he's, you know, that thought occurred to him and he started contemplating suicide. And suddenly he says that it, he felt that someone reached down and ejected him from his body. 
And he came out of his body, came out through the ceiling of his bedroom, up through the roof of the house, up into the sky, up, up, up toward the stars. He could he was so far up that he could see the sun coming up over the Atlantic Ocean. This is on the East Coast, on the Atlantic Ocean. And then suddenly he was in a very, he was, he said it was like something popped and he was just in a dark black space. And he saw these things that looked like little Christmas lights, twinkly Christmas lights coming toward him. And he said, is someone there? And they said, yes, we're here. We, we brought you here. And he said, well, well, what, what do you want? And he said, we brought you here because we have something very important to tell you. And he said, well, well, what is it that you have to tell me? And they said, your life is your own. And he said, my life is my own. Who else would it belong to? They said, no, what we mean, what we mean is that you can do with your life whatever you want. You can be what you want. You can become what you want. You can do what you want. You can destroy your life if you want. But that will only be a waste of time. He said, destroy my life. He said, you were contemplating suicide. He said, yeah, well, no, I wasn't going to do it, really. I said, well, and I'm going to cut to the chase here. They said, yes, you, you have done that in the past. And when you, you, you cannot end your life, your life doesn't end. There's only life. And when you kill your body, you don't kill your life. And you have a contract. You Once you go, you take a, a certain curriculum, you have to see it through. So if you end your life, your bodily life now, you will only be wasting time because you'll have to come back and face the same situations again until you get it right. So that was when he was 16. He's 70 some years old now, and he he still believes that. And that changed his life. And he said the reason that they, his guides, that's who these little twinkly lights were, did that to him was that he had committed suicide before and they were afraid he was going to do it again. So they intervened. By the way, the next few days later, he started a job as a lifeguard at a swimming pool and he met some girls over there and he forgot all about the one that was his buddy's girlfriend. So. <laughs> kind of the, the yeah the, I like the lighthearted ending that's uh that's pretty <laughs> awesome because I mean yeah. I'm just thinking about you know I was very suicidal in high school um and it's and it's funny to think that how much of it was tied to just uh liking girls and you're kind of roll your eyes yeah it, no I mean, a little you bit. Know. but that, that's life I mean that's ex- that's experience right um you experience things right, and you right. react to them well there was something else but I can't remember what it was there were okay. three parts <laughs> we got through two of them what was the question well, um, we were. I was. I was just fascinated at the. You answered it. I, I was fascinated with um, how you kind of deal with the more cynical outlooks, and it's basically like, don't worry. There's no afterlife. That's just a continuation of the same shit, different day. Um, yeah. Uh, no. You know, that's that's that that's, doesn't exist. That's comforting because uh, I don't think anybody truly wants. Maybe some people. Maybe maybe some rich people do. <laughs> but uh, I, the, you know, I think rich people have hard times too. They just have different kind of hard times than you and I do. Well, I'm not going to cry a river for him. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
I think it'd be a whole lot easier to deal with if you were, you know, had a couple billion dollars in the bank, but okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. La- la- maybe last question I'll ask kind of kind of geared towards what I've written about and what I've been researching and what I'll probably continue to, um, you know, have conversations about. Do you think most Christians who talk about the afterlife are simply mistaken or is something more sinister taking place or is it a little bit of both? <sighs> the Christians I know think the afterlife is going to be heaven. I don't know what they think heaven is. Um, like, you know, sitting around on a cloud would be kind of boring to me. But uh, I don't think it's sinister, you know. I, I just think that they're mistaken. I mean, they're right. There is an afterlife, and it can be beautiful. But I don't think we necessarily stay there that long. I think we're we we're on a journey. And I don't think while we're over there, we grow much because we are all one and we're having a great time. I think that even though we are can get fed up with this life and don't think I'll never do this again if, I, if I'm given the choice. When we're over there, we see things more philosophically and we realize that we have things about us that we need to work on and that the only place we can really do that is here in this reality. And so we, we, you know, we get over it. The Rosicrucians, I mentioned that I joined that uh, mystical society uh, a long, long time ago. And I went through all of their courses. I went from novice to, to adept. And their belief is that reincarnation typically happens every 140 years on average. That, you know, if you're here for, for uh, 70 years and you pass away, then in 70 years, following that, you'll incarnate again. Uh, that would only be on on average because, you know, it could be several hundred years between incarnations. It could be only a few months. The children that I mentioned earlier who remembered past lives from at the University of Virginia studied, their time between death and birth was, uh, on average, is only 15 months. But that's mainly because people who remember their past lives in those that have been studied by the University of Virginia, at least, uh, usually had a ending that was abrupt and before before their time, so to speak. Like they were killed in a war, they were murdered, they were killed in an automobile accident, they had some kind of illness and died uh, premature death. So they seemed to come back quickly, and they had more more likely to remember it. But I think the Rosicrucians are probably right that it is somewhere 140 years or so between incarnations. So we don't really stay over there that long, uh, not any longer than we're here between incarnations. Sure. And and I I like that theory. (laughs) It sounds good. (laughs) Sign me up. I'm in. Um, Again, I'm just, I'll I'll, I'll harp on it a little because I feel like I've been too nice today. Um, what I'm witnessing in in some Christian circles is not just a simple um, belief in afterlife. That's you know, I, I mean, I will say most most people I've run into, they're they're sincere in their beliefs. I don't think they're like saying they believe something for a, a darker purpose. But whether it's self sustaining or or intentional by by a group of individuals, it seems that um, their concepts of heaven and hell are are used for manipulation, um, and and it and it does. It, it, I think it ventures into abuse because it really does. Um, 
it does force people into boxes and, and, and make them live their life very differently than if they didn't believe um, the, the man-made constructions of afterlife that they're coming up with. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, uh, as I said uh, earlier, I, I go to church regularly with my wife. Do, do they, they, that church never brings it up. I haven't heard the word hell in that church, you know, ever. So, uh, I have talked to the preacher. He's read some some of my books, and you know thinks that he doesn't disagree with me. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and and most thoughtful. I mean, even if you look at like you know one of the great Christian apologists, C.S. Lewis. I mean, his perspectives on out afterlife are not um, super abusive. I wouldn't say. Um, but but I don't know. I, again, it's not as bad as like, you know, at the height of Christian fundamentalism. It's not, you know, there's not a, as much fire and brimstone preachers as there were, you know, in the light enlightenment period. But but I feel like there's still an undertone maybe of uh, of of at the end of the day when uh, the, the inquisitors of the world like you and I keep asking questions. Um, eventually they say, well, you want to go to heaven instead of hell. I feel like there's still that undertone a little bit. It may be. It may be. There probably. I'm sure there must be churches out there still preaching that fire and brimstone stuff. I just don't know. I mean, it's the kind of thing my mother railed against, as I mentioned earlier. You know, she just thought that was awful, and and the fact that somebody they could execute, hang people because they <laughs> were thought to be witches. I mean, you know, that kind of stuff is nuts. It's like the Inquisition, but it's all a power thing, as you mentioned. I mean, it, it's. That's not religion. That's people want to be in charge and they're going to say and do what they need to say and do in order to continue to be an authority. One might even call them a, a cult leader. Got to got to put the brand yeah, in there. It could be. And, and my <laughs> advice to anybody who's in that situation is walk away, go somewhere else. If you want to go to church, there's plenty of them that don't that never bring it up, never bring up that kind of stuff that it's all love and, you know, doing do unto others as you would have others do unto you. There's, that's great advice. It's it is great advice. They can also uh, they can also go to your books uh, if they uh, if they are looking for an alternative view from what they've heard. Absolutely. I'm about halfway through um, Life After Death: Powerful Evidence That You Will Not Die. Uh, enjoying uh-huh. it so far. Um, any any other books you want to promote, or uh, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, do come to my website, uh, shmartin.com. And up at the top, there's a menu and click on books and it'll show you a whole bunch of book covers of books that I've written. And you can click on any one of them and take you to the page on Amazon where you can read the first couple of chapters and find out more about it. Um, There are, you know, if you're interested, I've got a book on cosmology. I've got a book on uh, uh, how what Christianity needs to do to fix itself. They need to get real. I've got a book on um, uh, the the second book to Life After Death, Powerful Evidence You Will Never Die. It goes into my uh, feeling of merging, uh, sensation of merging with the with the infinite mind, which I think is pretty interesting. Uh, so, and I've got some novels. Uh, so. Yeah, check it out, shmartin.com. I, uh, and if you have a book you want to publish or if you need help editing, that sort of thing, I uh, offer those services. Also at the top, there's a tab that says publishing services. Click on that and it'll give you all the information there 
about that and send me an email and I'll I'll answer you. I like to get emails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most of mine are hate mail, but uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'll take it. Steven, this has honestly been one of uh, the most fun uh, episodes I've ever recorded. Just really fun stuff to talk about. Um, and uh, thank you for coming on. I can't say it enough. Thank you. Well, I've enjoyed it, John. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you, listener, for listening. Hope you have a good day. If you wish to learn more about what's going on in my life or wish to purchase my book, go to thecultofchristianity.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, please continue to listen, follow, share, and consider subscribing for additional content. For only five bucks a month, you'll have access to two additional shows, Parsing Propaganda, where I review and critique Christian content, and Art, where we try some amateur religious trauma therapy. Every subscriber becomes a part of something bigger than this podcast as we endeavor to hold churches accountable, speak the truth boldly, and most importantly, love others despite our pain. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep love in your life, hope in your heart, and searching in your soul.